Okay, so <clears throat> I'm trying to make it a thing where <clears throat> I just try to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying in each meeting and follow what God is, is saying. So as was pointed out this morning by Margaret, that there is a, a sense of continuity, a thread that's being weaved. And it's the same with our fair meetings as well. You, you just, just people start prophesying stuff and, and then someone's like, well, it just so happens that's what I prepared at communion. And then it's everything all just flows. So when God's flowing like that, it's important that we don't just cut it short and then right now I'm going to do the bit that I've prepared. Now we do the bit. Well, well let's try and stay in that flow where where God is going and let's see where we end up, shall we? All right, so if you'd like to open your Bibles, I'm sure you've all got one, or a digital one if it's on your phone. And we're going to look at Psalm 46. <coughs> so I guess we could call today's sermon, God is our refuge and strength. So I just want to look, what we'll do is we'll just work our way through verse by verse and see where we go. <coughs> so in verse one, excuse me a sec. <coughs> get out of the way with. Um, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, or a very present help in time of trouble, as some translations say. But it's interesting, isn't it? The first three words. I'm a great believer, because I'm a, a word man, I love the Bible, I'm very particular about every nuance of the text and that's why I tend to go for quite literal translations. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with other sorts, it's just for me it really helps me to get the meat uh, off the bone as it were and so it says God is our so first of all God is it's a present tense not God was not God will be not God might be but that God is amen so when it starts like that I like it in the beginning Genesis it says in the beginning God and in Proverbs it says um, that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord in other words if God is not at the beginning of everything then everything that's built upon that knowledge is flawed. Unless God is the beginning of all things, then whatever you're going to build on that foundation, you know, if, you, if, it's, if there's no God there, if you have a creation model that doesn't have God in it, you're going to go into error. If you have a creation model that has God up front and centre of that creation model, and if everything, all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding, if the beginning of all of that knowledge starts with the place that God starts from him then everything that's built upon that is right and good and holy but when we take god out of the equation and out of the knowledge then comes folly and that's why the world has gone mad now because what happens is the more you remove god from line upon line precept upon precept law from law then eventually you just end up in a place of delirium it's, I'm just literally going to follow my own desires. I'm going to follow what I think is right in my own eyes. I'm going to build a world that's based on my image. I'm going to build a universe the way I would like it to be built and not the way the scriptures says it should be built. Um, so, and this is really important that everything we do as Christians, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God is the word. So we need the word and also the beginning and the foundation of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If we start life from that premise, we'll do pretty good, right? If our marriage is built on the fear of the Lord, chances are we're probably going to have a better marriage than not. If our families are built on the knowledge of God, we're going to have better families because we know from God's word the right way to do things and the best way to do things. Amen. So God is 
God is, this, is, this is, takes me back to the Tetragrammaton in uh, Exodus 3, uh, 14, I think, or 3, yeah, 3, 14, where God says to Moses, he says, I am that I am. The all-sufficient, all-pervading, all-knowing, not requiring anything from anybody, absolutely always present, but yet spanning and transcendent all time and all space, in time and out of time. That's what transcendent means. It means he's not bound by laws that we are bound by. We're bound by laws of time. We are born, we go through a linear existence, and then poof, we pop out and we die and we go to glory, we go somewhere else, yeah? That's, that's our, but for God, he is all present, but he is also the God of I am. And for us, and this is another thing, you know, we, we, we often forget that God is the God of I am. It's like not what God did back in the 80s when there was a charismatic renewal. He's the God of now. And it's good that we call to, and we should, as Psalms tell us, to call to remembrance the things that God has done in our generations. And we should do that because it builds faith for us for the now generation. But nevertheless, we are in the moment now. And sometimes the now moment's not always a very nice now moment, is it? If we're honest with ourselves, you know, now, at, at current history, things are getting a little bit, you know, the old water's starting to boil a bit and the frog's in the, in the water. And okay, you know, the fuel prices, we can just about deal with it. We can just about cope with it, but it's starting to get hot. Things are not getting comfortable. Uh, and sometimes it's like, now is not a very good place to be. But that's the comfort of this scripture, is that the God of I am, not in the future or not in the past, the God of I am is with you. He's ever present with you. He will never fail you. He will never forsake you. He is with you now, even if your now is in the valley of the shadow of death. Hallelujah. He is with you now. And that's what I love about God. I love that Jesus, who, is, who was and is and ever will be, almighty God, stripped himself of his glory um, went inside a virgin's womb, lowered himself to that level that, that he would make himself as a slave, as one born under sin, but himself not in sin and born under law, but as not one in that way. And so he was, he was, he was like this child. And when you think about this, God was born from a woman and, and that very woman and, and his adopted dad, Joseph, had to look after God, had to feed him, had to take care of him. Take him for walks, to learn to love him, kiss him. I got this picture on my phone I saw the other day. It was on, it was on Facebook. And, it, and the picture's called Kissing the Face of God. And it's a picture of Mary, not, not like with halos or anything, but just a nice picture of like this country girl looking Mary. And she's kissing the face of Jesus, her little baby. And Mary only looks like 14, 15, but she's kissing Jesus' face. And the picture's called Kissing the Face of God. And you just look at it and you just, it, it really messes with your mind because it's like, Wow, that that poor country girl who was conceived by God and foreknown before time began, that, that somehow also through her, that Jesus would be born through the one whom he'd conceived. Now he's conceived through her, etc. And it's just a paradox. It's just a mystery and it blows your head. But it's just wonderful that my point is, is Jesus came down to our level. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah, not God was with us, not God will be with us, God with us, the present tense. And so God came into our valley of the shadow of death. He came into this world of all its sin and all its ugliness. But not only that, when he died on the cross, he took upon himself all sin, as it says in Hebrews, for all time. Hebrews chapter 10 says so he took on himself all sin, all the sin of the past, 
all of the sin of the future. And, for, and you might think, well, those in the past, they didn't know about Jesus. How could, they, how could the sin go on to him? Because of the sacrificial system through the Jewish people. Every time they laid their hands on the animal, blood of, blood of animals can't take away sins. But it was a shadow. It was a foretype. It was a, it was a, a foretelling of the work of Messiah. And so every time they, in faith, laid their hands on that animal, which represented Christ, okay, they transferred their sin onto that animal and atonement was made when that animal was, was killed. But ultimately, the blood, blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But ultimately, Jesus then came who took away our sin. So the Old Testament saints were looking to the future and we as New Testament saints now look back to the past. The cross is what splits our time in, in half, so to speak. But the point is, is that God came into our mess to save us from our mess. Now, that's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we worship. That he's not some far off remote deity who's like Mr. Grumpy and just gonna sh shoot you with thunder and lightning every two minutes because thou shalt not. Because actually, it, it, I don't think God ever has been like that at all. I think we've misunderstood God. You know. Jesus says, if you love me, John 14, you will obey me. Therefore, obedience is not a thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's because, no, I'm in love with Jesus and I'm in a relationship with Jesus. Therefore, I don't want to do the things that he doesn't like me doing. I want to do the things that he wants me to do. So if he says thou shalt not, I don't want to do that either. If he says thou shalt, then yes, I want to do that because I love my God. And if I love him, I will obey him. And if I fail, because I do have a war going on every day with my flesh and my spirit, how the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit's lusting against the flesh. Or what happens if I fail? I confess my sins and he is faithful, true and just to cleanse me of my sins and all unrighteousness that I may come back up into that, re that relationship again. God is. And then we come to the word our in Psalm 46. It's going to be a long, long sermon, right? If we're going to get through this whole, this whole psalm. God is our. Now, I know th there's a lot of psalms that talk about, you know, my God, my God. But here God, God is our refuge and in today's individualistic stylized christianity where it's all about your personal walk with god your personal jesus your personal salvation uh, entering allowing jesus to come into your own heart and it's your personal walk with god and your personal quiet times with jesus and your personal bible readings and personal this and personal that and self-help for christ and all this sort of stuff but actually the context of community is really important why is community really important because the church is the body of Christ. Now, this is not a throwaway comment that Paul came up with. Hey, I've got this great new concept. And it's called the body of Christ. You know, he could have called it the table of Christ or, or something else, but, or the chair of Christ. But nobody called it the body of Christ. But it's not a throwaway phrase, which I think we think it is. It's like, well, it's just a concept. It's just an idea. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It is a metaphysical reality of the mystery of Christ that somehow... Through this, the blood, the flesh, representing the, the, you know, the, the bread and the wine, we are partaking of that, that communion, Christ in us, the hope of glory, yet we, as we feast upon this, 
this communion, we are, if you like, because in the, in the blood is the life, we are ingesting the very life, the very essence, this, com, com, this, this, this covenant that we're in, that we are becoming Christ-like because of the Holy Spirit and because of baptism, that we're going from one degree of glory to another, ever becoming more like him. So when Paul says that the church is the body of Christ, and as the ancients called it, the mystical body of Christ on the earth, that means when I look at all of you lot, I am seeing something of Jesus. And together, corporately, we manifest something bigger than we could ever do ourselves of the manifold, multifaceted thing of God. I often think about, you know, Jesus. Like when Mary must have said to him, hey, Jesus, do you want some pizza for tea? And, and like, yeah, yeah, please, I'd love some pizza. I was like, that's the voice of God speaking to her there. It's like, that's the voice of God. You know, everything, can you imagine Jesus? He doesn't just say these really great epitomes of, of revelation all the time. He did have conversations with people. He's like, when they went to the wedding of the Canaan of Galilee, he wasn't just sat there all, all as, as a pictures, you know, whatever they do, where he's like that, and he's all kind of zoned out with a halo around him, just waiting for a holy moment. You know, you can tell that because of the way his mum talks to him. Hey, Jesus, can you sort this out? And he, he's kind of like the, the reticent, charismatic, well, you know, mother, it's not my time yet. You know, and she's like, and she's a little bit more pushy because um, she's his mum, she knows him. And, and so you get this, again, this relationship. And uh, I don't know where I'm going with this now. I've kind of lost my point, but we'll, we'll get back to it in a second. Um, but Jesus, when he was with us, he, he, you know, he spoke, he, he acted normally. I suspect if I was sat at the table at the wedding of the Canaan Galley, he'd say, hey, Chris, and I'd go, what? He'd say, what's that down there? And I'd go look down and he'd put his finger up my nose. like, oh, you get me every time with that. Because I imagine Jesus had a sense of humour. Yeah. I imagine Jesus did actually play, not cruel, but funny tricks on his disciples. I imagine he was a lovely guy to be around and quite funny, also quite serious and also a bit scary. And so then when you look around the church today and you look at individual Christians, you think, you know, that person over there is really practical. That shows me, I get, I bet Jesus was a really practical guy. You know, if he came around your house and he saw your door hanging off, you go, hey, I can fix that. You've got some, got some tools, we'll sort that out. He's a bit of a carpenter, he knows how to fix a door. But he's also, you know, you get those, those Christians that are the super spiritual floaty Christians. I bet he's a bit like that sometimes as well. Oh yes, just having a, have a God, having a God moment. So that reveals something of Jesus. And, and people who are caring and compassionate and pastoral, people who are good teachers and all of these things, they're all showing us something of, of, of Christ. I remember watching this film about Mother Teresa once. Don't ask why, just it was on. I thought, oh, I'll watch it, there's nothing else to watch. Um, but I loved, I loved how she, she looked at the poor because she said that everyone was made in the image of God. Therefore, if she went up to a poor person or a sick person on the street, she looked at them and tended to them as though they were Christ himself. And, and so, you know, that's, that's, how, that's how she did it. Every day, went out to these poor people and it's like, well, that's Christ's suffering. I'm going to go and help him. When Christ was in prison, I'll go and go to prison. When Christ was, was poor and naked, I would go and clothe him. That's, that's literally how she took it. She took that commission really seriously. And yet, it's more real in the church, the mystical body of Christ, that when we look around, okay, and you're all very familiar with each other, you all know what each other looks like, but actually, in each one of us, there's something of Jesus being manifest and being revealed that can't be manifest or revealed anywhere else on planet Earth. Jesus can't do it because he's in heaven. He is the head. We are the body. So this concept of a body is not like a nice analogy that Paul comes up. It, I personally think, and the ancient church believed it as well, that the body of Christ is the literal manifest presence of Christ on the earth. Because no one else is going to manifest Christ on the earth. Hallelujah. 
I think this is where people get wrong in today's uh, modern day world. They go, well, I am the church. Uh, you're kind of verging on blasphemy because you are saying you are the church. The church is the body of Christ. You are an individual member of the bride of Christ, of the church of God, but you are not the church. Oh, but I'm a temple. Yes, but even when Paul says you are a temple, the word you is plural. He's not referring to you singular. And the word he says, therefore, for temple isn't temple. It's actually sanctuary is how it should be correctly translated. So we collectively are the church. Me individually is not because only one can claim to be the church. That is Christ because his body is the church. All right. God is our refuge. These terms don't really make a lot of sense to us these days, probably as they would have done a long time ago, you know, when you had cities of refuge. So a city of refuge, for example, in biblical times, was uh, places that were set up. So if you'd accidentally killed somebody, you could flee there because obviously the member of the family, because if you killed, killed, accidentally killed someone, they had it in their right to actually come and get you and kill you. So, um, yeah, it's all, it's all in there, it's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So, so they built these cities of refuge where the people could hide and live uh, and then they could have their case heard out, etc., and and so on and so forth. And this is what God is for us. He is the ultimate city of refuge that no matter how tumultuous, no matter how difficult life gets, we can go to God who is our rock, who is our fortress, who is our Petra. Have anyone seen the Petra fortress on top of the uh, Petra Mount? Have anyone seen that in Israel? Okay, it's an almost impenetrable uh, citadel on top of a, on top of a rock, and uh, uh, just so I don't know quite when it happened, but there was a, a Maccabee. Is it a Maccabean roll? I don't remember who it was, but anyway, a whole load of Jews went up um, into this place, and the Romans tried to get them. Well, the only way they could get up there was they literally had to build a ramp. Now, I don't know if anyone's seen how high Petra is. It's enormous. It took them two years to build this ramp to get up there because there's no other way to get to this fortress. And then, yeah, I won't go into the whole story because it's not a very happy ending. But basically, that's what God is like. But he's an impenetrable fortress. He's a place where we can go, that we can run to, that we can hide, that we can find refuge in, we can find solace, we can find comfort. He's our security, he's our shield, he's our bulwark, he's our reward, he's our comforter, he's our great and mighty God. In the ancient church, they called him the dread warrior. He is there, he's there to fight our battles for us. He is the Lord of heaven's army, Lord of Sabaoth, the, the heavenly army. He is there, we've got to call upon him and we can run to him. He would just come under the presence of his shadow of his wing and come into him his place that secret place and we can call upon him one of the biggest revelations I had about the Psalms as I read them is actually 90% of the Psalms are actually about Jesus and him thinking when you read about the trouble and the heartache and the and and how people have broken God's law and how people have sinned against God's law and God please come to my aid you can really hear the voice of Christ on the cross in those things. Have you ever wondered about the Psalms where it says, I went down into hell? Well, who went down into hell? It says in Ephesians 4, he who ascended, descended into hell and took captivity captive is what it says. So, so we know that Jesus went down to hell as well. We know that. And if you read that in the Psalms. And, in, and then there's other Psalms where it says, I am weighed down with sin. Then, well, how can that be Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And you can hear how he's, he's saying, my bones are groaning under the weight of the sin. And you just, and as you read these Psalms, suddenly you're relating 
to Christ himself. So if you're ever reading the Psalms, you're like, I don't, I, I'm happy today. I don't know why this guy's so, so miserable. Try and put it in context of Christ and actually see things through his perspective. It'll give you a deeper revelation and understanding of the Psalms and make you pray them, because that's what they're supposed to be done. It's supposed to be pray them and sing them, not read them, and, and give you a depth to them that you've probably never experienced before. Highly recommend it. So God is our refuge and strength. There's that old song, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Yeah, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Do, do. Okay. <clears throat> be strong in the Lord, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You know, so many times we like to do things in our own strength, don't we? Oh, uh, I, can, I can sort that out for you, Marjorie. I know how to fix that cupboard. I'll just do it all by myself. I don't, hey, I don't even need to pray about it. I've got this covered. Ding! It's like, good luck with that. You know, and, and it's like half, two hours later, it's like, oh, I've had nothing but problems trying to get this nail out and all this kind of stuff and the screwdriver. I put the screwdriver there and I went back to there and it's gone. I don't know where it's gone. The screwdriver's there in his back pocket. I don't know, where's that screwdriver gone? Where's my pencil? And it's still in his ear. You know, it's like if we, if we do things God's way, even the most simplest of tasks and commit our ways to prayer, then he shall direct our paths. Isn't God good? If we commit our ways to him, he shall direct our paths. God is our refuge. And because God is our refuge, we need to understand as well that if we are the body of Christ, what does Paul say about the body of Christ? He said, if one of the members suffers, we all suffer. If one of the members rejoices, we're all rejoicing. In other words, we're supposed to look out for each other. We're supposed to care for one another. And if you see someone in the congregation who is sad, see them as Christ, who is sad. You honestly think Jesus, on a bad day, if you came up to him and tried to give him some comfort, he'd be like, sorry, I've got this. Do you think that's the kind of response you'd get from Jesus? Or do you think Jesus was a very open and honest man? Yeah, no, no, I've got this. I'm all right. I don't need, no, I'm, I'm good, thanks. You know, Jesus in his darkest moment, again through the Psalms, his friends had betrayed him, everyone had left him, you can read it in the Psalms. All he had left was his God. And even then he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And one of the things that I learned about Jesus on the Psalms is that he knows that his God's gonna deliver him. But we know that he's gonna die. But he knows he's gonna die. And sometimes when we pray for God to deliver us, we seem to think, Lord, this could be the worst thing that could ever happen. Please don't let that happen. So we would think surely death is the worst thing that could happen. Surely God, my deliverer, deliver me, deliver me, and then you die. All right? Happened to me. God, deliver me, deliver me. Boom, then I'm dead. All right? All right, great, thanks. But it's not the greater miracle that he still delivered me because he rose me again from the dead. You can say, well, why did he even let that happen in the first place? I don't know. I'm not God, but quite frankly, I'm glad that he rose me again from the dead. Thank you very much. All right. And Jesus, he knew that he was calling out to God to help him, knowing that he was going to go through an agonizing death. Yet he still praised God that God was going to deliver him from the hand of his enemies, but not in the way that we would like. And so sometimes when God is our refuge and he's our strength and he's our deliverer, a deliverer, it's not always going to go down the way that we might like. And I think sometimes, some people, sometimes we can get really crushed, can't we, by some things that have happened in our lives. It's like, why did I go through that? Why? why? And sometimes it's in those, the most darkest moments when we need to hang on the tightest is when we decided to let go and give up. And I think that's not a failure on God. And sometimes we, we pushed ourselves into a place where we shouldn't have got. 
But sometimes, you know, our God's a merciful God, but we always need to remember that even in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In the presence of mine enemies, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. God is our refuge and strength. The next part of the verse now. A very present help in trouble. A very present help. I think the psalm's being quite forceful there with what he means. Not a God will get round to it. Not maybe he was, but he's not now. No, he is a very present help. The thing is, we live our lives by sight. The Bible says, don't walk by sight, walk by faith. We walk by our natural feelings. Well, I don't feel that God is here and I can't see that God is here. And yet I'm reminded of, the, of Queen Esther. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing in that text that even hints that God is doing anything. There's no hint there in that text that God has said anything. It just looks like people just going about their everyday lives and maybe, maybe it's for such a time as this and everything's not very clear and not very sure, but somehow this happened and that happened. But actually when we read it from, the, when we look back in the rear view mirror, we can see the hand of God all over it. And sometimes you are not going to feel God. Sometimes you're not going to get the voice that you want to hear. Sometimes you're not going to get that scripture that just jumps out of you and it gives you hope to carry on. Because sometimes you could go through stuff, but then when you look back, you see the hand of God guiding your footsteps all the way. It was like me the first time I died. It was like, God, why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? But then as I looked through the timeline and saw that if I was not at that place, at that time, in the right place, at the right people, blah, 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 and so on and so forth, I wouldn't be here. And so I could see the providence of God. But you see, as charismatics, we want God to do big, bang, loud, super wonders and flashes of light. But God isn't Merlin. God will do things that show his love to you and that he gets the glory for. And sometimes that will be amazing and outstanding. And sometimes it can be so normal, like the woman Ruth, the Moabitess. She had no idea that she was gonna be in the genealogy of Christ. She had no idea that from her grandchildren would come mighty King David. She just came out of a really bad situation and followed her mother-in-law to Israel, took on a foreign God as far as she was concerned. And bear in mind that according to the Torah, Moabites were not allowed access to the presence of the Lord for so many generations, okay? Yet somehow that was all overlooked and she came into this place and she married a guy called Boaz. They had a kid, they had a very unextraordinary life, just living out their life with simple faith in God and then they died. But not realizing that through that simple event came this ripple that sent out all throughout time that from that simple unspectacular event in history would come ultimately the Messiah. So you might think my life is so boring and so unspectacular, what is possibly God playing at? But actually sometimes in the boring and in the unspectacular is the most amazing and most incredulous, subtle but wondrous plans and works of God at play in ways that you can't even fathom or begin to imagine or understand. I remember reading this, this book once and it was a by, by a lady called Mariah Woodworth Etta and she was like this healing evangelist in the 1880s. Now you didn't get women healing evangelists in those days because women weren't allowed to preach, okay? 
and uh, but she was this healing evangelist. She had signs and wonders, man. When she would walk into a town for a 20 mile radius, people would fall into trances and visions and stuff of either going to hell or going to heaven and stuff, all kinds of things. That was kind of like the thing that followed her ministry. In fact, I would say of all the people that I've ever read in all of living history, I don't know of anyone that had an anointing upon someone that strong. And that's saying something. But she was forgotten. All time had forgotten, even though she wrote these wonderful books. And it all started with some guy who was her great-grandson, who just found something in a local library about his great-grandma uh, on, on a microfiche film. And he was like looking through it. And he discovered like all this footage and stuff about her, you know, not film footage, but photographs. And, and she was on the front page of many papers. And he did more research and more research and then found out who she was some famous evangelist. And then it came about about her books and everything else. And now she's a back again being a household name. But, but you know what I mean? It's just like, and she, the, the, and her teachings from the 1800s, and I've read them, they're fantastic. Um, they're now affecting the now world. You think of the song Amazing Grace. Did he th honestly think that that would be like the chart top 10, 100 uh, worship songs for the next millennia? Of course he didn't. He just wrote it and thought it was a great song. I don't know if he thought it was a great song. It's just like, well, that's my praise to God. And we're still singing it today. My point is, I don't want you to underestimate or undervalue the importance of sometimes just going about your daily life and your daily business. That sometimes in the most unextraordinary of things, God is ever present to do wonderful things. And to bring this little talk to a close, he's a very present help in trouble. He's a help. He's not a hinderer. He's not there to give you a hard time. Yes, the Holy Spirit does convict us of unrighteousness, but if he does, you know what you need to do? Confess, get over it, and move on. So when you're back into that place again, it's like, okay, right, I've done that. Holy Spirit convicted me. I, I did make a mistake. I did that, blah, blah, blah. But now he's my ever, he's my very present help in trouble. Anyone here in their lives being in trouble, called out to the living God, and then he delivered you? Yeah? Sure, everyone here has got some stories to tell from the most simple like I lost my keys till I forgot my wallet through to some really life and death scenarios and situations because our God is a good God and he's a very present help in time of trouble and he is our refuge and he is our strength. But let's not forget that he is also the God of the I am, but he's also the God of our. He belongs to us. And we are a community of believers. It's not about me, myself, I and Jesus and God channel. It's about us as a community. And that us as a community are the mystical body of Christ, that Christ is on the earth. And that we look after each other and see Christ in one another. Because he is with us, he's ever present and he'll never fail us and he'll never forsake us. Be encouraged. Amen. Amen.